Chapter Fifteen of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Fifteen: When he is best, he is little worse than a man, and when he is worst, he is little better than a beast. Shakespeare. Even as the frail little old lady sat quietly looking out at the coming of the dawn, Katim the Ethiopian sat looking with pride round his transformed hovel in the back reaches of the bazaar. Having gathered Zulana from the gutter where she had been thrown after the dogs had pulled her down, he carried her to his hovel, and believing her to be dead, flung her body on the heap of filthy straw which served him as a couch, and then stole back, in fact six times he made the journey, to the courtesan's great house. He did not argue with himself, he had no theories and most certainly no moral standards. The woman was dead, there were certain things, beautiful, gaudy, glittering things in her house, which his heart had always coveted, which had made his fingers to itch and his mouth to water. Brute instinct told him to seize the bones before the other dogs fell upon them, and he obeyed the brutish impulse. Hundreds of soft silken gowns, cushions of every hue, the great crimson cover from off the divan, all of these he made into a huge bundle which he carried to his den. The gold and jeweled toilette accessories, the silver basin and ewer, just because they glittered, he tied in a pair of emerald green satin curtains, various strange knives and things with prongs, with which on certain occasions the courtesan had conveyed food to her mouth, she used her fingers in private, with a jewel-encrusted nargila of marvellous workmanship, he rolled up in a bright yellow and green Kittermaster carpet. On his fifth journey he carried a small milliner safe upon his back, letting it drop gently upon the hovel floor without the slightest acceleration in his breathing. For five minutes he played with the knob, like a huge monkey, then grinned, rubbed his chest and bull-neck with straw, and padded off again down the circuitous streets at a gentle trot. He looked at the sky and at the closed doors and windows of the packed houses and grinned again. He could not tell the hour by a clock, but he knew to a second when the first of the seething mass of humans asleep on the beds and floors and stairs of the packed houses would yawn, rub the sleep from their eyes, and stumble, shivering, into the street. He had still his greatest treasure to bring, and had no wish to be caught with it on his back, not because of the criminality of his proceedings, that never once entered his thick skull, but because he was scared of having the mirror reft from him. He was almost devoid of brain, but had a certain animal instinct which served him in good stead, and which, in this instance, urged him to keep his part in the history of the past evening to himself. He picked up the full-length mirror as though it had been but a small picture, and stood for an instant grinning cheerfully, looking round the room in which his mistress had so often kicked and threatened him. Then he gave a little click at the back of his throat placed the mirror on the floor, and stole across the Persian carpet of an unknown antiquity and value, to a painted deal writing-desk which had once reposed in a shop in a window in Westbourne Grove, and which, on account of its little drawers and cupboards with painted doors, had given intense joy to the woman whose wealth in hard cash, in the bank and jewels in the safe, was almost incredible. He lifted the slanting lid, moved a bundle of papers fastened by an elastic band, and pulled out a drawer out of which he took a cheque-book. He had no idea of the real use of the book with the buff cover and pale pink leaves, but he knew that you only had to make certain black marks on one of the pink leaves, and take it to the big house in the Sharia Clot Bay, with its fierce man standing in front of the door, and money would be given in exchange. 
On account of his cunning, his stolidity, his mighty muscle and ferocious appearance, Katim had been made bank-messenger-in-chief to the house of Zulana, and had often stood at his mistress's side when she had taken the check-book from the drawer, and made strange black marks on one of the pink leaves. True, he had rolled his eyes and shown his teeth fiercely many a time at the interpreter, who had to be called to explain that, although he had handed a pink leaf through the bars, there was no money forthcoming, but as his mistress had not struck him for returning empty-handed, he had resigned himself at last to the strangeness of the proceedings. The book meant money, that was all he knew, so he slipped it into his loin-cloth, as had been his rather distressing habit, when handed a bundle of notes by the bank-clerk who, with his co-workers, had never tired of gazing at the gigantic creature in white shorts, crimson tunic, huge turban, and rattling scimitar. He gave no thought to the dead body on the filthy straw. That he knew he could carry under his arm and drop into the Nile whenever the bazaar slept, but he pulled hard at his curly hair as a plan germinated in the sluggish convolutions of his brain. It was a very vague and a very childlike plan, but too much could not be expected from one who had been conceived, born, and bred on the animal plane. After an hour's pondering, it, however, took a fairly definite outline. When the sun had warmed the cool wind of night, he would hide the body under the straw and visit his eunuch twin, who had really been the cause of the disaster. His silence would have to be bought. Of course, it would have been better to have broken his neck at once, but it was too late now, so there was no use in worrying. Then he would go terrorize the servants, giving them to understand that he had been left in charge in his mistress's absence. He would remain in charge until he had acquired enough money to buy the coal-black little Venus, who worked in the shoemaker's bazaar. After that he would creep away with her and return to his own village further down the Nile. And because, perhaps, of the childishness of the plan, it succeeded up to a certain point. He found his eunuch brother, who was the only one besides his master and himself to know that the dancer had been Zulana, in the grip of such terror and physical pain as to be an almost imbecile, though a look of cunning had shone for a moment in his bloodshot eyes, when Katim had inadvertently let drop a hint as to the accumulated riches in his hovel. Anyway, they came to an understanding which ensured the eunuch's silence at the price of so much good money, paid in installments. Katim had no intention of holding to his side of the agreement, nor his brother to his, as is the way of such a breed of Oriental. Then, just as he was, clad only in loincloth and with whip in hand, the gigantic brute strode to the house of Zulana. Ensued a turbulent hour, at the end of which he remained acknowledged master of the house, and inmates till the return of the mistress, whilst those who had mocked him went in search of cool leaves to place upon the bruised portion of their backs, and those two whose heads he had cracked together for having resisted him lay quite still. Returned to the hovel as the sun was sinking, and in a high fettle he donned red tunic, huge turban, and rattling scimitar, and strutted with all the negro's delight in fine feathers in front of the mirror, which rested against the crumbling plaster walls. And then he suddenly stopped and stared into the glass. The filthy straw in the corner of the room had moved. His face went gray, Great beads of sweat showed upon his chest, his knees shook, and then he fell on his face and covered his head with a corner of the green-yellow Kittermaster carpet, when a voice feebly craved for water and a small blood-stained hand weakly pulled at the straw. Zulana was not dead. He lay terror-stricken for some long time, then slowly got to his knees, tore off the fine feathers and flung the scimitar into a fine corner, then, naked save for the loincloth, 
sat down with his back to the straw and pulled at his curly, oiled hair, a sure sign in him of deep thought. Then he grinned, and rising, walked across the floor, and sitting down again, pulled the woman from under the straw. No, Zulana was not dead, nor even fatally hurt, but she was horrible to look upon when the Ethiopian had washed her clean by means of a handful of straw dipped in a broken pitcher of water. The dog's great fangs had driven behind her ear, severing the mastoid nerve so that the mouth was pulled right up the left side of the face. It had also injured the muscle controlling the eyelid, causing it to droop, and giving a diabolical leer to the once beautiful, doll-like face. It had also injured the muscle of the neck, so that the head was slightly twisted. But worst of all, the other dog had driven its terrible fangs into the muscle above the knees, injuring it so that she could never walk straight again. And Katim sat back on his haunches, and laughed, clapping his enormous hands. She was not dead, and her hands were not injured, but she was too hideous to show herself unveiled, and too twisted to be recognized in the street. So all that was left to him to do was to cure her injuries, which he did, and quickly, under the advice of an old herbalist in the silk market, and then sit down for the rest of his life while she drew strange little marks on those pale pink leaves. End of chapter 15 Read by Sibella Denton. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.